This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Andrew Udarian from ecommercefuel.com reveals how he would launch a successful Amazon business in 2017. On today's episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that launched a product on Tumblr that results in $200,000 of sales in just three weeks. In this episode, you'll learn the difference between working with influencers on Tumblr versus Instagram, why you should keep your copy brief when running retargeting ads, and how to come up with content marketing ideas around your product. Today, I'm joined by Jason Wong from the memebible.com. That's T-H-E-M-E-M-E. B-I-B-L-E.com. The Meme Bible is 16 pages of the most iconic memes in forms of coloring books, connect the dots, word search, crossword puzzle, and maze. And was started in 2014 and based out of Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Jason. Hello. Hi, Felix. Hey, so yeah, tell us a bit more about the, the Meme Bible. How did you come up with this idea? Well, I, you know, before doing e-commerce, I was an influencer on social media. So I, you know, started running these large pages to um, entertain people with internet memes. And I realized that there's, you know, a different ways to present these kind of internet memes and another way to, you know, remember them. Um, instead of putting them digitally on different platforms, I can turn them into a children's activity book for people to kind of, you know, give us a gag gift or to enjoy and to remember 2016 in a special way. Yeah, that makes sense. So you obviously have experience or exposure in this um, this culture, this, I guess this meme culture, I'm not sure what you would call it. Um, and you, you knew that there were these iconic images that you're talking about. There's these iconic memes. and But you chose to turn it into, like you're saying, an activity book. I think a lot of times when people have this, um, these iconic images from whatever industry, whatever niche they're focused on, their immediate thought is to go to create t-shirts or mugs or things like that, things that are kind of merchandise that's easy to produce. But you went right for an activity book. Like, What made you decide to go that direction rather than, I guess, the more uh, typical approach of, of getting merchandise made? Right. That's a really good question because you know the the easy thought is to why not just print everything on a t-shirt and sell them for a higher price point is popular right now. Just get you know wearables. But I was actually inspired by the adult swear word coloring book. I'm not sure if you heard of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um yeah, it's when an artist about a year ago, actually like a year ago, um, this time, created like a, a few pages of coloring activities using swear words and it's for adults and you know you can color in the flowers surrounding the words mm-hmm. and all that stuff and the artist made about i would say like a million dollars or more from wow. that deal and you know obviously the money is good but the idea is special because no one really thought of turning something so common you know swear words into a coloring book which is you know commonly perceived as a children's activity so what if we do something that adults and teenagers enjoy and you know integrate something um, that people do in the childhood into that and put them together to create something that's memorable. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense that you wanted to create this new type of product and not just slap two products together, your the memes, and then slap it onto to a wearable, like you're saying. Um, so this this meme bob that you're creating, this activity book that you were creating, were you able to validate it before you you made much progress into? It? Like, how did you know that this was the right approach? Again, you know, making it a better approach than just to create wearables and, and merchandise. Well, um, well, for a lot of things, even for my previous businesses, a lot of them is just trial and error. And, you know, I, you know, and honestly, I create this book in two weeks. You know, everything, everything the designs, the publishing, the printing was done in a very short span of time. So there's really no time for me to do market research, audience research, analysis or anything. It's just really print, sell. If it sells well, reinvest that money and, and print more. So in the beginning, I would say around November 27th of this year, that's when I started printing the books. I printed 250 copies of it. And that costed me about $450. And, you know, at that time, it was kind of most of the money that I had. It was just a few hundred dollars. So I put all of that into the book, printing it, not knowing whether it will be a success or not. I kind of calculated how much I would need to sell to break even. But... I didn't expect it to sell so much. So all I had was 250 copies. I was I would be happy if it all sold out. And it just went beyond that. Yeah, that's amazing. So you did this in two weeks, which I think sometimes it takes people even longer to do market research. It takes even, it takes even longer than two weeks to do market research. I think your approach makes a lot of sense, especially if it doesn't require that much uh, capital to invest. You know, 400 $450 is not that much in the kind of grand scheme of things. If you can spend that kind of money, get a product out there, and then validate it with an actual product, I think that's totally uh, the right approach, you know, rather than spending the two weeks kind of going academically about it and trying to do the research. Um, so this this two weeks though, I think that's a very quick turnaround time. You know, it sounds like you think the same thing that it was done very quickly. What did you uh, What did you actually do in those two weeks? Like, how were you able to come up with the idea, design it, get it get it you know manufactured so quickly? Right. So what I did was in the beginning doing a lot of research on to what was trending throughout the year because the idea of this book is to memorize 2016 by using the things that were iconic. So I had to, you know, look back through different sources like um, like people's blogs, Reddit, um, the, meme, the meme archives, different Twitter accounts to see what was most popular, how well were they received, and what are people's opinion about it. Because some, some memes just aren't meant to uh, be used again, and some are so popular that I believe people would like to see them in different forms. So for most of the time, I just did a lot of market research into like what was popular and how to integrate that into an activity. Because what I realized that um, the memes in 2016 are drastically different than the memes in 2012. And I'll give an example on that. Um, like four or five years ago, the memes were kind of like cartoonish, you know, like the derp or like, you know, the rage comics. Mm-hmm. So those are more, you know, drawing based. Those are, you know, comics and, you know, you can easily replicate them and turn them into coloring books or children's activity. But a lot of things this year and, you know, even last year are kind of picture or video based, like Dan Daniel, for example, Mm -hmm. or last year, Alex from Target. These are video formats. How do we turn them into a children's activity book? So that was some of the challenges that I faced. It's just, you know, how do we integrate them into an activity that's fun? Um, that's, you know, memorable and 
still retains the same idea without kind of shifting away from its original meanings. In those uh, those two weeks, you had all of these challenges, all these design challenges to to take what uh, these iconic images, these videos, and turn them into paper form that could be uh, used for an activity like coloring or connect the dots. Um, so, was this the what you're doing for those two weeks? The, that design, that kind of uh, uh, I guess um, brainstorming of how to implement this or were you getting it or was it actually being produced in those two weeks as well like when did you actually get this into the hands of uh, I guess the, the 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 people that were going to produce the books for you right so one of the biggest problem I had was not anticipating the demand I would you know receive so around like late November I started printing 250 books and they would come in a few days I sold out those 250 books within six hours of putting them on my site through various marketing tactics. So after that, I started doing pre-sales, and people didn't receive those pre-sale items until a week later. Um, We do try to time everything so that people will receive it before Christmas. So that was another challenge as well, you know, rush order everything, getting things from point A to point B. And... In the beginning, I thought of fulfilling everything on my own, you know, hiring a couple of friends, do it in the garage. But then we sold over 10,000 books. And at that point, I realized that I need to reroute everything to a professional fulfillment center because there's really no way I can do everything and get everyone's product in their hands before Christmas. Mm. Yeah, so this sounds like it must still all happen in one month, this month of November, where you design all this, you got them, got it made, you start, you sold out of it pretty much all in a span of, you know, 30 days. Uh, so where did you get these uh, books printed? Was it just like any, I, I'm not even sure how if someone wanted to take this similar approach and create, uh, books or create activity books. Are there manufacturers or other uh, producers that focus specifically on 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 uh, designing products like this? Um, yeah. So another problem was that I never had any experience of printing um, physical media. So finding someone that's reputable um, was important. So I depending a lot on like online reviews. So I looked at a printer that's near my place because that, that would ensure the fastest delivery time. And I found a printer in Northern California in San Francisco area that was able to print each unit at a reasonable price and then get them to me in the fastest time possible, which is like two-day production time. Um, so that, that was going well until I had to ship my fulfillment center to Texas. And at that time, I had to find another fulf- uh, printing center that was close to the fulfillment center so we can get it you know, from the printer to the fulfillment center as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, there wasn't really any special tactics that I used to find these sources. It's just Googling and then depending on other people's experience and then going with that. Right, makes sense. Okay, so you had these uh, initial 250 printed and they sold out very quickly. What were you doing to, to market? Was it was it just the, the, the I guess, the, um, the social media platforms that you were an influencer on? Or what were you doing to sell out so quickly? Yeah, so that was a large part of it, actually. So, you know, just a little background on myself. I'm a influencer on Tumblr, and I have about over 1.4 million followers. So being able to market that and having that seen by my audience is getting picked up really easily because it's, it's, it's a viral element in itself because all the memes are, you know, viral already right so people started picking it up and be like oh i want this for christmas i want this and it just went from there it went viral after you show it from the the beginning 
Okay, yeah, so I think then the, the next question is like the act of becoming an influencer on these platforms. I think there's an approach that a lot of people find themselves in where they have built a following, maybe not nearly as successful as yours, you know, over a million followers is amazing, but maybe not as successful as yours, but still enough that they might be able to launch some kind of business off of it. Um, so now Tumblr specifically, you know, I've heard of people being influencers or people working with influencers on Instagram, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Facebook, all of those channels. Channels, but never anybody on Tumblr. So, what has your experience been like? What is what have you found different about being an influencer on Tumblr versus the other platforms? Right, right. So, Tumblr is such a unique place, and it's a hard place to be an influencer on. Um, so, a lot of people flock to Twitter or Instagram because it's so easy to grow their accounts. But I feel like there's such a large disconnectivity. Uh, between the influencer and their audience when they're on Twitter and Instagram because essentially all they really are doing is posting um, contents that are copied from other people and then pushing it to their audiences. Whereas on Tumblr, I feel like there's a bigger connection between the influencer and the audience. So there's more opportunities to have conversations with one another. Sometimes we host meetups. It's kind of like YouTube, but more on like a text-based format. Mm. So I feel like by having that closer you know interpersonal relationship with your audience by you know making them like friends rather than an audience we are able to push our products um better and more efficiently because there's more trust in us as an influencer to endorse these products so i think that's the biggest distinction between being an influencer on tumblr and being an influencer on other platforms now um another thing that really separates us is the promotion methods so a lot of memes do originate from Tumblr or made popular by Tumblr. Mm -hmm. So the people on there are already familiar with this kind of content. Like they know what is going on in the books. They just want to buy something that's memorable and mm -hmm. to remember these memes. So having that right audience was very important. And, you know, I, I, I believe that a lot of people that listen to this podcast won't be an influencer themselves. And that's totally okay because you really just need to find an influencer mm. to um, connect with. Like, you know, if I didn't have any um, audience on my personal accounts, I can still achieve a similar effect because I reached out to the right people that can connect me to the right people. So it's really about the networking effect and knowing the right people. You don't, you don't need a million followers on yourself to do, you know, what I do. You just need to find the right market and then find the right marketing tactics to go about it. Yeah, I, I like that, that you don't want people to essentially spend all this time that I'm sure you spend a lot of time to build your following on Tumblr. You don't have to focus on that when you are a business owner. You can just find existing influencers and work with them. So, Absolutely. Yeah, so tell us about this. Like, you know, what is it like, you know, from your perspective, of course, and well, let me ask you this first. Have you worked with other Tumblr influencers to help promote your products? Absolutely. So. I will say that in the beginning, I used my own blog to promote the product. But after two or three days, I shifted away from my own personal promotion and I pushed it all to other influencers. So I reached out to all the big accounts on Tumblr and I started you know, um, working with them to push the products out. And essentially, I kind of just like leave the promotion off my own blog because I was spending more time developing more content and developing more connections with people to work with. So by the end of like, you know, sixth or seventh day, most of Tumblr's influencers have my content posted on the blog in one way or another. So we did a very large campaign on Tumblr. 
Mm-hmm. And what is what is your perspective been with uh, from being on both sides as an influencer and as someone that works with influencers? How do you how does the, I guess the deals usually work with influencers on Tumblr? If someone wanted to tap into the demographic that is on Tumblr, and how do they even find influencers and how do they uh, approach them? Well, there's several like services that connect you with them, but most of these services exclude Tumblr. Um, particularly because it's really hard to get into, so not many influencers are able to use it. I was able to have access to these influencers myself because I am in their circle, so I'm able to have better access to them. But the best advice for people outside of you know this circle is to contact these people one-on-one, and they connect you with their friends, they connect with um, you with their circle. Uh, there's, there's a special relationship between influencers and brands, and um, I think a lot of people need to remember that they depend on you and you depend on them. So there's a mm-hmm. mutual beneficial relationship. Um, there's really no um, trouble reaching out and just you know chatting up a deal, you know, pay per post or pay per commission. These are things that a lot of people work with and are they're happy to work with your budget if necessary. Mm-hmm. And how do you determine if an influencer is the right connection for for your brand? Like, what are you looking at to determine that they will? essentially have the right uh, demographic of uh, followers? Uh, Yeah, so that's a really good question because it's really hard to determine. There's really no single indicator of whether or not they're suitable for you. There's no scale. There's no score. Mm -hmm. But it's really about observing the influencer account and seeing the type of contents that they reach out to and what kind of audience those content uh, attracts. So I'll just give a very clear example. Let's say for Twitter. Um, If you're pushing like a hair product, you're aiming for, I would say, a largely female audience. Um, With that in mind, you find out the age group of the audience that you want to target, Uh, perhaps some hobby, your interests. And then you go on Twitter and look for accounts that are posting contents that relate to it. So using the same um, example audience, uh, teenage girls, likes hair's product, maybe we can look for a Twitter account that posts about teenage girl quotes or teenage girl mm. posts, like things that are relatable to these teenage girls because you will know that their audience is mostly females and probably te- in the teenage years. Um, so that's one way to go about it. Another way that I've been experimenting was with Facebook advertisements, which um, has been very successful. Um, it's my first time working on Facebook advertisements, but it's very accurate because all you really need to have is the initial user data and then it goes from there. Um, so I'll elaborate on that if you want. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's go into that in a second. I want to uh, right after this, but I want to close out on this Tumblr uh, discussion real quick. So, um, if someone wants to work with an influencer on Tumblr, you, you're saying that there are different kind of deals that you can craft as either pay per post or some kind of commission. Can you give an idea of what kind of budget you would need uh, before it even makes sense? Can you start with you know hundred dollars, or do you need to have more than that to to actually have any success uh, working with influencers on Tumblr? Right. So budgets a large problem for a lot of people because for Twitter and Instagram and even Facebook, they charge a lot of money for the views, for the traffics, you know, user impressions, CP um, conversion. But on Tumblr, it's special because the cost of promoting there is so low. A lot of people charge by post, so, you know, a few dollars per share. Sometimes they'll create a post for you for a few dollars and then, um, or you can go with the commission way, you know, cut them a 25, 30% deal and then they'll be happy to go about it. So if you're on a budget and you want to reach a large audience, I think Tumblr is the best place to do it. 
if you have the right strategies. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so let's talk about Facebook now because like you're saying, it's been very effective for you. And what you're saying earlier was that all you need is the initial, I guess, user data from the, the I'm assuming you're talking about the traffic that's already coming to your site and then you build your ads based on, on the, I guess, the user data. Are you like creating lookalike audiences? Like what are you doing exactly on Facebook? Right, so... In the first few days, I didn't touch Facebook ads. What I did was that I installed a Facebook tra- uh, pixel um, for the advertisement manager, and then you know I installed a Google Analytics. What I really heavily focused on was um, funneling uh, enough traffic through um, social media sites like Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. So at my first few days, I was getting about fifteen to twenty thousand visitors a day. By the fourth day, I had about you know fifty thousand visitors, and that's fifty thousand worth of user data. Using that data, I, you know, start doing retargeting ads on advertisements. So people that have visited my site will now have a cookie on their browser and Facebook will know who these users are. So whenever they go on Facebook to check their news feed, to talk to their friends, they will start seeing advertisements for uh, the Mean Bible offering a discount code. And that has been very successful for us. We, I think we did about six, 7,000 just in sales from that in a few days. That's awesome. So you are, what you're saying is you place a Facebook pixel on your site and mm-hmm. uh, drive the initial traffic through social media, I'm assuming through your accounts and through working with influencers. And then from there, you can retarget all of the, the audience that was already coming to your site before, again, with ads. And they're obviously going to be much more likely to convert because they're already familiar with the products, with, with the brand. Um, so, right. so did you segment out the, uh, the, the audience anymore? Like, were you trying to retarget people that were looking at the home page, the product page, add to car, like all of it, or were you more focused on a specific, I guess, part of the funnel? So I had different um, asset mix. So I have the retargeting based on visitors. And then um, other than that, I had advertisements for recovery cart that offer a bigger discounts because people that have added the product to the cart are very warm uh, traffic and they're very more likely to um, go back and buy again if they offer an, a better incentive to do so. So I've been working with both sides of that for now. Okay, so you, um, you're for for any any card abandoners, you are advertising to them again on Facebook, and in order to uh, push them towards the conversion, you are offering a discount code. Yeah. So the my discount code for um, these card recovery was fifteen percent, and I sent out an email eighteen hours after card abandonment. Uh, I've been playing around with different hours. So, you know, one hour, 18 hours, 24 hours. And I found 18 hours to be the most effective for some reason. And what another thing that I learned from retargeting ads is that you need to keep the description as brief as possible. There's really no need to re-describe your product. No need to write a paragraph about it. It's just, you know, here's a discount code. You can use it if you come back. Because these are visitors that went through your website already. They don't need to you know, get you to make the sales to them again. They just need an incentive to come back and you just really need to offer them that. That makes sense. So keeping it as brief as possible. Is there, do you find that there was harm in, I guess, elaborating too much in the, in the copy? Uh, yes. For these? Okay. Absolutely. Um, so in the beginning, I made the mistake of making a very um, detailed retargeting advertisement. So I had like a what I did was I copy my product description and I put it in, into the ad again. And then at the bottom, I put the 15% discount code. 
So most people, even even myself, we don't read through that lengthy text. We just want to see a discount code. But because there's a lengthy text, sometimes we are deterred from even reading it in the first place. So the conversions for that kind of advertisement was very low. And I was struggling, and I asked around, consulted a few friends in e-commerce, and they recommended the shorter text version, which yield very um, good results. I see. So you are like, like going even as far as making the headline mention the discount or maybe even mention the discount code? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's just you need to give them an incentive to come back. And most people don't care about reading your product description again. They just want to know, why should I come back? Like, you know, give me a reason to. Mm, I see. That makes a lot of sense. Focus on the reason. Focus on uh, why they should go back and check out the product and not spend that time describing the product to them because they probably already already read it or already familiar enough with it and they just need to know the reason. I like that. I like that that kind of line of thinking. Uh, so you were talking about card abandonment earlier. I think I might, might have misheard you. Were you saying that you are setting out card abandonment emails or are you actually retargeting them on Facebook, um, retargeting card banners on Facebook or, or are you doing both? Just email. Um, I, I don't think it's good to be repetitive because it's, it, it seems like a spam um, tactic. So for visitors that visit our site, the main page, not any specific page, we send out a retargeting ad on Facebook. For card abandonment customers, we send out a, a ba- car recovery email after 18 hours. And, you know, I've been seeing results, very good results for both of them. Mm-hmm. So in these card abandonment emails, are you following the same uh, philosophy where you're keeping it super short? Like, what are you saying in the in these emails? Yeah, uh, I think it's my overall email is two lines in total. It's just, you know, the first line was come back and enjoy this discount code. The second line was just the discount code. And, yeah, the conversion rate from these kind of emails were very high. I, I don't know the numbers exactly because I'm not on the page right now, but from what I've been observing these past few days, they have a high success rate. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay, cool. So let's talk about uh, content marketing. I think that that was a, an approach that worked uh, very well for you. Um, mm-hmm. I, I believe, I'm not sure if it was your email or I read it somewhere about you that you spent, uh, you sold $20,000 worth of products in just five days with some basic content marketing. And one interesting thing that you said after that was that content marketing for you consists of 50% of taking advantage of natural human behavior and 50% thinking of ways to not promote your product. Can mm-hmm. you say, can you explain a little more about this? Like what is that, what does that uh, breakdown I guess mean to you? Right. So content marketing is essentially promoting your product through its ideas, but not the content itself. So you want to promote, um, like an ideology between uh, revolving your idea. I mean, revolving your product. So, people that see, you know, product marketing sales, they don't like it. They feel like they're being taken advantage of, and they just kind of, you know, show show these ads away from their eyes. But once we promote an idea and it gets their interest, they're more inclined to, you know, spend more time into learning more about it. And once you get the idea into them and get the interest um, in them they are more inclined to you know, make a purchase or even share it with their friends. So an example, um, I, I guess you're referring to the articles in Forbes? Yeah, I believe there was a Forbes article. Yeah, so that was about um, my time selling on Trendico, which is during the election season, I sold a shirt with Bernie Sanders holding a cat on the T-shirt. And it was like a Photoshop photo of him holding a cat in front of a galaxy background. And it was a pretty funny picture, and I found the picture off Reddit, 
what I did was that, you know, I contacted an artist to work together to use his product, I mean, to use his image, and then cut him a commission deal out of all the sales. And it did really well. So what I did was that I didn't really push the product. I just started, you know, sharing his, you know, Bernie Sanders as a person, his ideas, and then, you know, just throwing throwing the product in there in a mix. And people see, you know, they like the idea, they like the joke. Because it's a funny shirt. Once they like the joke, they're more inclined to check out the page and bam, you, you get, you know, several cart, um, add to cart people. Some some might purchase, some might not. You send them a, a cart abandonment email and some might even come back from that. Mm, makes sense. So th- was this also promoted through your own social channels or what did you, how did you um, spread these ideas? So the, this was entirely on Tumblr because this, I, I believe it's the only platform where I can effectively um, use multimedia to promote an idea. So Twitter is very limited because it's 140 characters. Instagram, there's no native link in the caption, so you can't really link anything. And even in the caption, it's very limited because the space is very restricting. So Tumblr was an ideal platform for me to use to spread these kind of ideas, to spread um, jokes about the presidential um, candidate and, you know, to spread his ideas and to throw the shirt and kind of sandwich it together. I see what you're saying. So basically what you're getting at is that you don't want to spend your time talking about your product. You want to talk about the the idea, maybe the lifestyle that, that surrounds your product or talk about content that would attract the target customers uh, to to your content and then eventually uh, lead them into your, your site, into your store. So now if someone wants to take this approach, which I think is an, an awesome approach because um, you are, you don't have to pay for ads in this case, right? You're putting on content and hopefully maybe you're working with some influencers, maybe you're paying that way. Um, but it's mm-hmm. much more of a, I guess, indirect sell. And I think that that, that rubs people the, the, a better way than, than a more hard sell. So if you have a product, how do you back out into the idea, right? Because you have this t-shirt idea and maybe your, maybe yours is a little bit easier because, you know, it's Bernie Sanders and obviously he has a lot of ideas and he has this, uh, there's this kind of revolution, I guess, around him uh, during that time. But if you have a more, I guess, a more boring, I guess, product, I can't think of a good one right now, but you have a more boring product, how do you step back and try to discover the ideas that surround that, that product so that you can create content based on those ideas? Right. Um, so I'll give you an example. I think it's best to, you know, just talk on example. And one of the uh, products that I've been working with in the past few months was a uh, phone case. So phone case is very straightforward. A lot of people do it as cheap to manufacture. And, and I believe a lot of shop owners do phone cases because it's a high margin product. So how do we, you know, market a phone case? It's just a boring phone case. Um, I guess for my example specifically, my case has a functionality, which is, it sticks on windows. It sticks on any flat surface. It's called an anti-gravity phone case. And it has a nano suction uh, material in the back of the case where you can stick it on windows. You can stick it on uh, mirrors. It's great for people doing makeup, people cooking that wants to stick their phone on a cabinet. So these are the great functions. And these are the functions that I, I believe draws people's interest. So before we talk about the phone case in itself, you know, selling the phone case here, buy it for $9.99, we talk about what it can do. We talk about, you know, how what it's made out of, um, what it's capable of doing, and then we feature the product in the end. But by that time, by the time people see the product, they kind of know what the product is already. 
because they know what's capable of, what it's made out of. And I guess people that are interested by that are more inclined to look at the product at the end. Mm, okay, it makes sense. So you're you're focusing a lot on the the benefits, like how can your life be improved uh, by having this this product, but not actually talking about it until they're bought into the idea, bought into how their lives can can improve from there. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I think another another this wasn't your quote necessarily, but this was something that I believe in a Forbes article too, where it says that you explained that your method of converting content into results. I'm assuming that means sales. Uh, through a story about how pyramid scheme organizations recruit. Uh, so can you say more about this? Like, How do you relate, I guess, a pyramid scheme to content and conversions? Right. Um, so it, it was actually, yeah, it was my course from an experience of mine. So last year when I first moved to LA, I, you know, I was standing in line at Costco. And then this girl in front of me, she's fairly attractive. And then she started making a conversation with me. She was like, hey, uh, you know, what are you here for? Uh, what do you do? Where do you go to school? My name is Ann. Um, I do this. I'm going to meet my mentor later. And that's where it hit me. I, I like the word mentor because I've always been wanting to learn um, more things from someone who's an expert at a spe- specific field. And she started talking about her mentor. She's talking about the things that he taught her, everything, all the great benefits, the trips that they take to these conferences. And I was really interested at that point. And after five minutes or so, I got her number. We were supposed to meet for dinner in a few days. And the dinner happened at a house. You know, she brought me in. Um, and then she started talking about this book. It's, it's a book by, I, I believe his name is Robert. And it's called like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm not sure if you heard about that mm-hmm. book before. Yeah. But she presented me this book. And she was like, I want you to read this book. And, you know, kind of absorb the ideas behind it. And at this point, there's really like no... She didn't mention any business. She didn't mention any um, marketing agency. She just like started giving me these ideas, the ideas of starting your own business, the ideas of doing small business and taking your own future into your own hands and how to make passive income, giving me all these fantastic ideas that I've always wanted to learn and want to achieve. And then after I finished the book, she was giving me this like, you know, package kit, like notebooks, fancy suitcase. And then she drew me into this, um, house two weeks later and we were all seated in the living room and this guy comes out you know introduce himself as a founder or like a partner at this um agency and it sounded exactly like a pyramid scheme in hindsight it is a pyramid scheme but then he started talking about the benefits of joining this organizations the discounts and the money that you can make by referring your friends and family and at that point i realized well shit i'm I'm, I'm in a pyramid scheme (laughs) but (laughs) I was three weeks into this program already, and I did not know that it was a pyramid scheme at all. So it was so effective because he was selling me the great ideas that I've always wanted to have. He started talking about the benefits. Um, He talked about the lifestyle that I would have, um, being retired at 32 years old, um, using himself as an example. And I was like, wait, I want to be retired at 32. I want to have passive income. I want to make six grand a month doing something that I love. And he was selling me all these ideas that I wanted and I would believe everyone else in the room wanted that I did not know that was in a pyramid scheme. And then, you know, at the end of the day, they want us to sign up for a membership for like a hundred something dollars. Um, I, I don't know what agency it was because it was so sophisticated that they did not mention what uh, multi-level um, marketing agency it was. 
it, it was just like there's they were so focused on pressing the idea that they did not tell me what organization we were working for. So usually, like most people are upfront, they're like, "Oh, you're working for um, MCA, you're working for Herbalife, you're working for all these organizations." But at the end of the day, I still don't know who I was working for. I was just so interested in joining that I did not care or I did not hear anything at all. Mm, so, so I, I yeah, it, it, it translates to content marketing itself. It's just you sell the idea, you get people interested, and they will not think that as an advertisement. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think one of the, what worked, I guess, well in your example of being recruited into this pyramid scheme without knowing was that they were able to keep your attention for almost a month. They were able to get you to keep coming back and listening to be essentially indoctrinated over that time. Now, how can you replicate that, I guess, online? Like, how do you keep people's attention? How do you keep them returning back to hear the message? You know, I don't want people to leave this trying to build a pyramid scheme of their own, but like, there's some, you know, benefit, right, to knowing how to keep people's attention so you can keep hitting them with your message. What what works? Well, what works in your case, or what kind of tips do you have to keep people's attention so you can get your message to them? Right. So um, one way is to keep active social media accounts and keep consistent content going up. So if you're selling like a I would say something in like the health supplement industry, you will start posting a lot of like before and after pictures, right? Some customer testimonials. These are all content and ideas that you want to instill in your audience's mind. Is that, oh, this product works. Here's the pictures. Here's the blog post about the benefits of it. It's to start building a customer base and then feeding them more contents rather than feeding them more advertisements. Because contents are easy to keep people reading. Advertisements kind of just like steers people away at first sight. So it's to build an active social media account and have consistent contents posted onto it that kind of relates back to the idea of the product, the benefits of it, why people should be more interested in it. Rather than, you know, every single post being buy this for 15% off, you know, get 30% off if you buy a second item. Like these are the things that you put in once in a while. But what you should really focus on is having consistent content and having a consistent theme revolving around your product that gets people interested. Mm-hmm. So let's take um, Instagram, for example. I think that that's probably a platform that most people are familiar with. Uh, mm-hmm. Now you're saying, let's say on your feed, if you're selling some kind of weight loss product to post a lot of uh, you know, success stories, post a lot of content about how to lose weight, you know, basically inspirational, motivational content. Um, now, at any point, do you ever include in your feed your product or any mention of the product? Or do you wait for them to kind of go deeper into your funnel by like joining your mailing list or or something before you mention the product, right? Because there's a, a you know gigantic feed of uh, images, motivational quotes, before and after pictures, and then a picture of you know ten percent off. You come check out the site. Do you do you believe in taking that approach, or like how do you how would you set that up? I believe that the deeper that you get someone into your funnel, the easier it is to retain them as a customer. Um, if you do a, if you do everything so early on and you rush it, they're not really what we call a warm traffic they're still kind of cold they're still kind of on the fence about doing this and that so you kind of want to get them like to be more of like a customer base loyal customer base and um start feeding them ideas and then selling them from there this will take you know a lot of time to build especially for like if you're building a brand rather than building like a product because building a brand is all about building a brand recognition and establishing your credibility as a brand whereas a product you just kind of you know, push a product and then dump it in a couple of weeks. So there's different approaches depending on what's your objective. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And the reason I'm asking is because if someone follows your your uh, Instagram from the very beginning, then it'll definitely make sense to them that you know you're posting ten uh, content marketing posts, and then the eleventh one is a uh, essentially a sell, maybe it's a soft sell or something to get them to check out the site. Now, if someone dropped in and not at the very beginning, dropped in on the eighth post, then it seems like the pitch came on a lot sooner. So, how do you manage that kind of um, I guess difference in time? Timing of people dropping into your your content marketing feed, uh, whether it be on Tumblr or whether it be on Instagram or any other platform that has this feed. Um, so there's different approaches to this. What I think is important is to keep your main account um, to be more content centric, mm-hmm. and then using your influencer connections to make the um, to make the mixture of posts because people that follow the influencer posts go to your account and they don't see the ads, they see the contents and they're more inclined to follow it. So you can use the influencer um, connections and using their posts to have these a mixture of advertisement and content posts. Mm, okay, I see what you're saying. So uh, you're, you're kind of a... Uh, uh, not assuming, but you are. The the idea is that the influencers that you are working with, uh, they're also probably being followed by your audience, so that mm-hmm. they're focused on on your main account. They see all the content, they see all the value you're providing, but you're not doing the selling. You're working with the influencers that your current audience probably is also following. Uh, that they're doing a selling on your behalf. I like that approach. Yeah, so it keeps your account clean, like pure, and it doesn't make yourself seem like very sales pushy. But it doesn't matter if the influencer is the ones that are uh, sales and pushy because, well, one, you're not really connected to them, and two, they delete the post shortly after. So what you really need to do is like clean your, keep your account at a clean slate and then let the influencers do like what we say, the dirty work. Right, that makes sense, and it also, uh, when someone else sells on your behalf, it it kind of takes away some of the assumed bias that people will will automatically uh, feel if it's the own brand itself that's pushing the product. If someone else is pushing it, even if it's a paid influencer, I think people are much more likely to trust the the you know think that it's less biased, even though you know you're essentially paying them or working with them in some regard anyway. Absolutely. So now when it comes to actually creating the content for your social media or whatever else you're creating, uh, what's your process like? You know, what, how do you determine what you, kind of content you should be creating and do you produce all the content yourself? So sometimes I do my own content development and sometimes I outsource this to other people to like, you know, write blog posts. Um, blog posts increases your site's SEO and it gives the customers a better understanding of what your product or your brand is about. So that's one thing that you, I guess you can outsource to someone else. Another thing about social media posts is that you really need to keep like a consistent quality. So um, a lot of work is really keeping the consistency. If you change photographers, for example, the quality and the tone may change. So there's a lot of challenges about creating um, good content. And um, most of the time I just take it upon myself to do it and I start by studying the audience. I look at the product that I'm trying to promote, who is trying to attract, what is something that they are interested in right now, and how can I integrate their current interest into my product? So how can I relate those two together to make it more appealing? 
Mm. So for the the main kind of uh, uh, marketing channels for you, in your case, it would be Tumblr. You want to be the one that's curating and creating the content because you can keep the messaging, the tone, the the voice the same. If you start building a team around it and spreading it to the work to other people, then you can run into a situation where there's a difference in tone and, and you feel like audiences can pick up on that. Absolutely. And um, now when it comes to outsourcing, though, especially for maybe your secondary channels, like your blogs, your blog, for example, uh, where do you typically go to find uh, outsourced uh, or, I guess, freelancers? A good freelance website I've been using so far is um, Upwork. And then another one is Fiverr. It's Fiverr is the one that uh, you can hire people for $5, and it's very simple gigs. Quality, I wouldn't say is excellent, but, it, you know, I guess a job done if you can proofread it at the end. Uh, those are that's something for people on a budget, which I really was a few months ago. So couldn't really afford professional freelancers for like forty dollars an hour. So I went to Fiverr. Um, there's different ways. Sometimes you just have to write it yourself and get your friends to proofread it. That's the cheapest option. Cool. Now, when you are working with influencers to promote your product, whether it be on Tumblr or Instagram, are, do you have any tips on how you can set up a deal or, I guess, um, talk about the promotion with these influencers that will uh, you know, ensure that you get what you need to turn a positive ROI on, on investing in these influencers? Yeah, so for a good influencer deal there it comes with weeks of planning planning ahead what kind of pictures to use you have to understand their audience because the influencers themselves understand their audience better than anyone else so you really need to have consistent communication with them understand what's been working well so far um check their previous collaborations what kind of text what kind of pictures works well and then start developing content space on there and I, I guess depending on which social media talent agency that you work with, some of them will do most of the dirty work for you. Any any recommendations on, on social media talent agencies that, that you know of that would, um, I guess, be a good start for anyone that's trying to try out this uh, work with influencers for the first time? Right. So one that I personally recommend for Twitter and, and Instagram is a thing called Flipmask. Um, flipmask.com and so they are very well connected to Instagram and Twitter um, influencers and they can you know start developing contents and pushing distributing these contents for you another thing that I've always also used in the past is uh, famebit.com which focuses more on Instagram and YouTube so I guess like if you have a product that you think a product review would do well on you can collaborate with YouTube accounts on famebit and then you pay from there. The influencer doesn't get paid until they deliver the product. You can review everything. So it's a very sophisticated um, process to ensure that no one really gets screwed over. Mm-hmm. And does this make sense to use Flipmask or FameBit for people that are just starting out? Or do you recommend that people try to go off on their own first? Like what, at what stage in a business uh, sh- before you should focus on going with these uh, talent agencies? I, I think Flipmask is good if you have a larger value in a budget because accounts these accounts uh, I mean these companies are working with big brand names and they are using handling large volumes so especially if you have a good budget for these I would say like you know one to five thousand um, in the beginning if you're starting out with a small budget which I believe most small business owners are I will just reach out to these influencers um, by yourself but by doing so you're also putting yourself at a risk of you know being scammed or having low quality contents delivered so it's 
it's I would say it's safe. It's a good investment to work with agencies such as Fainbit or Flipmask. Awesome. So with all this, uh, these marketing channels that you focus on, working with influencers, having your own platform, I think it was mentioned uh, earlier or maybe off the podcast that you only spent $400 on this uh, coloring book, this meme, col- meme Bible, and you made $100,000 in just seven days. Can you give us an idea of how successful the business is today? I think, I guess this is probably like your what, second month now. Uh, in business? Oh, uh, we're actually third week in business. We haven't been, we, we start, we began on December 3rd. So it's been about 20 days. Wow. Um, we're, we're close to 200 grand right now. That's amazing. So where do you want to see, uh, you know, your businesses uh, be in the, the next year, this time next year? I, I believe there's a lot of room for updates because internet memes are constantly changing, but I don't want to make a series that's so frequent because it kind of loses its freshness so I would say like a couple series per year, like an end of the year deal or like a mid-year deal, maybe like a large collection, a history book, something like that, something that we can work with. But these are these new ideas I'm exploring and trying to see what works best right now. Awesome. So thanks so much for your time, Jason. The memebible.com is the store that we talked about. You also have a few other businesses that you run. Can you let the audience know about where they can go to find out more about your other businesses? Yeah, so one that I'm working, uh, focusing heavily on right now is 50.co. Um, so that company focuses on helping homeless animals by pledging a fifth of our proceeds to um, donate to Best Friends Animal Society, which is the largest no-kill shelter in the United States. So we work around you know, these shelters and we produce apparels that features dogs and we make apparels that are honoring different dogs in the shelter. And it's, it's been a really fun journey so far to do something that I'm passionate about and also helps make a living. Awesome. Again, thanks again so much for your time, Jason. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.